0: Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you're interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group. To access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For March, we are reading Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Jennifer Rosner about Once We Were Home. Jennifer is the author of the novels Once We Were Home and The Yellow Bird Sings, a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award, the memoir, If a Tree Falls, A Family's Quest to Hear and Be Heard, about raising her deaf daughters in a hearing-speaking world, and a children's book, The Mitten String, which is a Sydney Taylor Book Award notable. She lives in Western Massachusetts with her family. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi,
1: I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the professional, professional Book, book Nerds. nerds. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading.
0: Welcome, Jennifer. I am so glad you're back on my podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course. So you're here today to talk about your second book, Once We Were Home, But before we dive into that, I would love for you to give me some background. So your story is set around World War II and after World War II. Can you give me a quick overview of what happened to certain Jewish children during that time period and why? During the
1: war, as it became clear that it was very, very dangerous and that people were being sent to concentration camps and that, you know, ghettos were being liquidated, families were trying to find safe havens for their children. And so sometimes they found a Polish family who would be willing to take the children and um, either they would be in hiding or they would hide in plain sight on a farm or some such. And other places, you know, sometimes people were able to get their children into convents for safekeeping. And then after the war, there were efforts to try to reclaim some of these Jewish children. Some of them were orphans, but there was this really um, deep desire to return them to Judaism. And so there was a sort of mission in place to try to find them and then to try to return them to Judaism. And I explore this movement and also some of the psychological ramifications of it, because some of these children had really bonded in their placements. I was exploring what it would be like for them to be moved after they were, you know, put in this safe place and had bonded with this new family. So they had already had the rupture of losing their first family and then they were moved again after having adjusted to the second family and so that was one of the cases there were other cases in which you know once someone was in a christian setting that the christians would like the child to stay in that setting for their salvation and reasons like that and then there was further cases of movements of children during wartime when germany was trying to bolster their population and himmler came up with a program of germanization where they would take not necessarily Jewish children, Polish children and others who could fit the specifications (laughs) with caliper tests and eye color charts, et cetera, and look German, and they would move them into Germanization centers and sometimes adopt them into families. And then after the war, there was an attempt to repatriate those children. And um, again, another set of ruptures for children because the children might have bonded with a German family at this point, and then people were trying to move them back to their Polish family. So it's just very complicated um, experiences of adults moving children in accordance with some kind of belief system or ideology, and then the children's experience of being moved.
0: And the whole religious aspect of it laid on top of it. And so some of the people wanted to keep their children, the, the, ki- the kids they now consider to be their children as Christians, while a lot of Jewish people would like to return them to Judaism, even if they had lost their family members.
1: Exactly. And it was a very fraught because, you know, my part of the storyline takes place in Poland. And, you know, Poland really was just like one giant cemetery for Jewish people, right? And it was very dangerous. There was a lot of anti-Semitism, not just during the war, but after the war. And for the remaining Jews, some of these adults, they felt so worried about leaving children in Poland. And um, so it was both religious wanting to honor the you know, the wishes of the parents who died to leave descendants. It was a desire to repopulate the Jewry, which had been completely (laughs) wiped out. Um, So they were trying to rebuild this collective of Jewish people. Um, But also even on an individual level, I think there was a lot of fear for, you know, about leaving children behind.
0: Yes. And having something happen to them even after the war. Exactly. Okay, good. Well, thank you. I just think that gives a little context. For those that are listening, obviously, if you're reading the book, you get it. But for those that haven't read it yet, I just wanted to have a little bit of understanding the background behind what happened. So now, will you give me a quick summary of Once We Were Home?
1: Sure. So there are four narrative threads in Once We Were Home because I was trying to capture the various uh, instances of children being moved in wartime. So the novel is told from the point of view of four children during and in the aftermath of World War II. So Oscar and Anna are a Jewish brother and sister. They're ages three and seven when their mother secures a hiding place for them with a Christian farm couple before their ghetto is liquidated. The parents perish in the Holocaust, but the children survive living with this couple bonded and in Oscar's case, with no memory of a life before. But then this woman from an organization seeking to retrieve Jewish orphans comes and seeks to return them to the Jewish fold. So that's the Oscar and Anna storyline. Then in another storyline, Roger is also just three, like Oscar, when his parents place him in a convent in France for safekeeping. His parents don't survive, but an aunt does. And when she petitions for his custody, French clergy take Roger into hiding and then on the run as they seek to secure his Christian salvation. And the fourth thread is Renata, who we meet when she's 28. She's an archaeologist from Oxford, England, working in Jerusalem. She has very little memory of her early childhood. The secrets of her past are are held and actually narrated by the smallest of a set of Matryoshka dolls. But the reader learns that Renata was native to Poland when she was taken for Germanization and placed with a German couple. And after the war, when the UNRRA sought to repatriate Germanized children, Renata's German adoptive mother moves her to Oxford, not wanting to let her go. So the stories of these four characters converge eventually in Israel and in unexpected ways.
0: I thought it was such a fascinating story and definitely something I knew almost nothing about. And I really felt so sorry for all of them because it's a difficult situation, especially for those kids that are so young and don't know anything different.
1: Yeah. And memory is a very big part of this because, for instance, in the Oscar and Anna cases, Anna remembered her Jewish family. She remembered her her heritage, her roots. She remembered, you know, Friday night, Shabbat dinner. <laughs> she had some memory, so that when she was taken back into Judaism, there was a way in which it did feel like a return or a coming home of some sort. But for Oscar, who was just three when he was put into the Polish family, and, you know, four years go by, he has no memory at all of, of of any connection to Judaism. It's all foreign. It was much harder. So for different children, they had very different experiences of this reclamation or whatever. There were various words for this reclaiming, redeeming, retrieving, ransoming. I mean, you know, to ways of getting these children back. But it really depended on various factors, you know, what it was like in the sort of quote unquote, safe home, you know, sometimes it was very loving. And other times they were essentially farm hands. you know, there were various factors that made the reclamation, one thing or another. So, you know, for some children, they were actually very happy to be taken. And for others, it was very painful. And there was some some real degree of psychic damage, especially because it was a rupture on top of another rupture. (laughs) And um, it was it was quite trying.
0: And just trying to have a sense from where you really came from, I'm sure that had to be so difficult for all of those children. The way you created Roger's story, I thought was really interesting because he would have obviously been much better off with his aunt than he would have been living in a convent and then stolen away from the convent and put into hiding. You just kind of wonder sometimes about some of these groups and entities. What is wrong with them?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I want to be so careful that I don't draw any equivalencies between the cases and the different adults who are moving these children because all the cases are so very different. But what I, what I was struck by was that when someone really believes in something, however misguided, they're just moved forward and it can really lead to to inconceivable <laughs> results. I mean in Roger's case, you know, I think they were very concerned for his salvation and they wanted to keep him within the church and uh it led to thinking that even though he has actual relatives living and a family to go to that he should stay within the church and you know these these are based on true cases each of my stories is based on true stories there you know i've created fictional narratives and very you know made up characters with their idiosyncrasies roger's you know very philosophical kid and he's thinking a lot about where You know, his soul would belong and who he is, and you know, what is the nature of home, etc. Or how is a person the same self over time if you are believing in one God and then another God, and all these different questions. So he's, you know, a, a figment of my imagination, but his case is based on a historical case of two brothers who actually were in a convent for safekeeping and then they were essentially kidnapped and taken on the run by clergy who later were arrested, you know, when they were defying court orders when a relative petitioned for custody and basically won the case but then couldn't get the children because they had taken
0: him away It's just horrifying to think about but it's interesting because I think there have been a variety of stories in the last few years that talk about home and what exactly is home and what happens when you start in one place and end up in another and then often have to go back to the first place or back to something similar can you ever really get settled you know can you ever decide, who you are and where you came from. And it seems that that sometimes is a really difficult thing.
1: I agree. And I think that something that people seem to overlook is just the attachment of children, you know, the bonds they form. And isn't that what makes a home, right? It's not necessarily other things that sometimes we associate with home, but rather, you know, the bonds and connections you have in a place. And to overlook that because of something like, you know, your home is you know with the Jewish people, or your home is with the Christian people, or your you know, or or your home is with the parent you had, even though you can't remember that parent. Or you know, I mean, these are very tricky, very complex. But but from the child's point of view, which I was really exploring, I wanted to explore you know the nature of bonds and and um, and how those locate you in a home. And I should just say that you know, there's a very personal reason I'm invested in this story because I'm the mother of two deaf children, and my husband and I are hearing. And it's interesting when hearing people have deaf children, which is actually the majority of cases, something like 90 percent of deaf children are born to hearing parents. But there's a feeling from some in the deaf community that if a child's born deaf, they should be, you know, with deaf people, they should be in a signing deaf world. And, you know, it's kind of jarring to the hearing parents since Most other people, when they birth a child, that child just inherits their language, their culture, you know, naturally. (laughs) But in the world of deafness, because a child, you know, has broken cilia in their ear, they might belong somewhere else. You know, I, I worked a lot on this issue and thought about it carefully. And you know, felt like we wanted this intimacy with our children and this bond with our children. And then there were other people who were saying they actually belong somewhere else. So the idea of to whom and where a child belongs is very, very close to the bone here.
0: Did you read True Biz last year? I did. Because that really introduced me to a lot of what you're talking about. And I didn't really understand that or wasn't aware of it, something I hadn't been introduced to before. But how much contention maybe is the right word? How much is around all of that, what you're talking about? Deaf children being brought up with signing and and different things. I wasn't aware of all of that till I read that. So at least that, that does inform a little bit better for me what you're saying, but I just can't even fathom giving birth to two children and then having someone tell me that they didn't belong with me.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was startling, honestly, to hear yeah. that kind of line of thinking. And the world of deafness, which is actually the subject of my next novel, is an incredibly fraught subject. And, you know, some of it is, it's like resting on top of this reservoir of pain um, for how deaf people have been treated and lack of opportunity and all kinds of things. And we're in a time now where you have these options for technology and other things that would take a deaf person in some sense out of the deaf world, which is threatening in many ways to the deaf community. And um, so it's very, very messy and very complicated and very emotional, but it's hard on every side. And so I, and I think it's very hard for children because they're kind of getting caught up in the swirl of identity and where they belong, et cetera it's it's just really complicated and so those themes were part of what we lived as a family and then i learned of you know a case of a child being taken you know once they were in another family you know after the war and and it just like hit all these you know it hit, hit all these nerves for me and it was something that brought me to my desk every single day
0: well it's definitely a fascinating story and i liked that you portrayed a variety of aspects of what happened with them and you know you're talking about oscar and how he never knew anything else. And also, you know, their parents are gone. So it makes it even trickier. It's not like they're being taken to live with a relative. They're being taken just because people feel like, okay, we need more Jewish people. And I understand that aspect of it because there was such a huge loss during the war, but it just makes it all the more tricky.
1: Yeah, it is tricky. I think it was to rebuild Judaism. I think, as I mentioned earlier, I also think it had to do with, Trying to respect the wishes of dead parents to leave descendants. And I think that further point was that they were quite scared for the children. So, like, from our perspective later, we might think, well, if they were in a safe home and they were happy, why don't you just leave them there? But I think people, after, you know, just in the wake of the war, really felt very untrusting, very at risk. And so there was a psychological need. They thought they were saving those children, even if it meant those children ended up in a Jewish orphanage or in a kibbutz or something that didn't necessarily have a specific family member. They did see it as saving. And I think maybe in some of the cases it was if the circumstances weren't at all happy. And in a way, you know, when I read the testimony of some of the operatives who did this work, there was kind of a looking back and wondering you know, we thought we were doing the right thing. We were, they felt really righteous at the time. And then later wondered, especially in particular cases that were very, very fraught, whether this could, have, you know, maybe this wasn't the right thing. So I think it was a moral quandary and really complex. And I think that, you know, it's almost hard to even put into words, you know, because the experience is so hard to even understand if you're not in it. But I think that the emotions ran so high to try to reclaim everyone, given all the losses, because it's like you're coming out of a situation where, you know, you've lost everyone in your community and your family and whatever. And you hear that there's someone living, survived this situation, you, you know, you just want them back. And so in that particular case, in a way, that one was the most complex and emotionally fraught, whereas, for instance, you know, trying to baptize a child illicitly and take them on the run (laughs) in order to save the Christian soul. I mean, that too was undergirded by true belief, like, you know, that child salvation may depend on this sort of thing. So like, I feel like there was this earnestness, but um, there were different factors that really make the cases different.
0: I agree. And I could see all sides. I just liked the way you set it up because I felt you did create more of a moral quandary. You know, it wasn't like they were working as farm hands and thank goodness they were taken elsewhere I disliked the way you presented it and same with Roger as I was reading I felt like I really had to think through it all and I couldn't quite come down on either side
1: yeah yeah I I wanted it to feel really round and complex because I think that is how this history is the situation with Renata that case you know I think the Germanization program, was really morally corrupt. You know, they were just taking children from their homes, trying to, you know, bolster Germans, because there was like a low birth rate, the soldier, the male soldiers were off at the war. And, you know, they were trying to, you know, add to their master race. And so that one isn't so morally ambiguous. But what's complicated in that case is that, you know, from the child's perspective, you know, they're, they're taken from their home, they're put into this other German home, maybe they then bond with that German family. And then after the war, you know, they're they're trying. You know, there was an effort to repatriate them back, and I read this incredible book by an author named Gita Sereni called "The Healing Wound," and she was one of those workers who tried to repatriate the children. And she, again, you know, she saw the rupture she was creating by trying to get them back to their actual families. But on the other hand, she was in touch with the families who were so desperate to get their children back. So it was just really difficult. You know, it was so painful.
0: Absolutely. Oh, yes. I was not referring to her story. And that is, again, though, so tricky because these German families, they weren't the ones taking the children. They've been taking care of them. The kids love them. But I'm sure the original parents were like, we'd love our children back. And I do have to say, I think Roger's story initially I couldn't decide but as it went on I definitely was siding with Roger and his aunt so it wasn't like I felt like the Catholic Church should be kidnapping children and taking them elsewhere just for their salvation I definitely wanted to comment on that
1: Yeah no no of course not and you know but it but it is really difficult when you feel that you know a child's bond when when you want to honor a child's bond but it's leading you in directions that seem difficult to justify. And and that was one of the things I also thought was interesting. You know, like, are we supposed to support the Germanization program because the child is bonded with the German pro- program? You know what I mean? It's, it's just very complicated.
0: It is incredibly complicated. Well, who was the hardest to write and who was the easiest?
1: That's a great question. It was so interesting to me that for some reason, the two boys just came to me, Oscar and Roger, I just sort of knew them right away and I loved them right away. They were by far the easiest to write. Renata was the most complicated, I think, because I wasn't launching her as a, you know, from childhood. I think having to start her at age 28, and I did that because I thought it would be interesting that the timeline would go that, you know, Renata would begin at the end in some sense, like she would be the same age all the way through. And that's the age that other children will ultimately get to when they all meet up. So, so you know, there was this structure I had in mind, but it was really interesting when I was working with uh, developing these other three children and then trying to develop this 28-year-old. I just found getting, you know, like the pulse of her was a bit more tricky. I had to write her her sections a few times to really feel the vibrancy and the activity and all these things.
0: What about Anna?
1: Anna... I'd say was sort of in between there but I I think that she's a very complex character and um you know she's really one of those children who's in the in the between meaning you know she is somewhat close to the family that's harboring her but on the other hand she really does remember her her parents and so she's she's toggling between and feeling disloyal <laughs> so that if she does kind of end up feeling affection for this foster family, there's somehow this feeling inside her that she's betraying her real family you know and I wanted so so her complexity you know I wanted that all to come through and then there's further complexities that happen later in the novel about her sense of identity and her origins and so interestingly, I think Anna's character like really grew on me in terms of you know her her attitudinal complexity and the life complexity she had so as the story goes on, I I felt like I really, you know, had her in my grip.
0: And because of her age, when the story starts, she really does have such memory. And you mentioned it, and I don't want to spoil it, but I think that leads to a lot of change for her down the road.
1: Yes, agreed. And and complexity, because your memory is not always even completely accurate. Remembering things and then trying to, you know, trying to figure out what they're really tracking and. Yeah, so, so her case enabled me to explore the children who, when taken, in some ways felt redeemed, but in other ways, you know, had great loss of this other foster or rescue family as well.
0: And she could never quite get settled. I think she does eventually, but it takes a long time.
1: Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think that the female characters in my novel in some ways may have more psychological complexity in this regard. And somehow the boys, they find some way, whether it's a relationship to land or or ideas or something else that grounds them. Whereas the women, I think especially Anna, yeah, her story is very
0: complex. Well, you must have done an incredible amount of research. Was it hard to narrow that down to include the things that were really pertinent to the story, and not just info dump all of this fascinating information.
1: Yeah, um, that always happens in historical fiction that there will be little details that you really want to get in there, but they don't serve your story in any way. But I felt that it's true. I was I was dealing with many cases and different cases, and you know all the different details that that you know were surrounding those particular cases. But in the end, I ended, you know, I found that I was relying on, you know, very specific um, historical records and archives and testimonies that, that helped me kind of just get grounded in the, in the timeframe and in the milieu and all the things that were happening and the specifics, you know, of, of the kind of various movements toward, uh, you know, doing this movement of children. And so One thing that really helped me in my research is that there was this Israeli scholar who had studied this very particular subject matter of the children who were being reclaimed. And I worked with her, she read my manuscript, actually, she had a friend translate it to Hebrew for her. And then we had these long conversations about it. She was incredibly generous. And she also, you know, she did so much as, you know, helped me to try to create a timeline, you know, when Oscar and Anna are moved from, you know, the the farmhouse to one kind of children's home to another, you know, in different locations, and then getting on a boat, I mean, the timelines, the locations, and all those things, she helped me map out to be realistic. And there was, you know, another historian who, you know, we talked a lot about the particular trauma that these children went through. And, you know, there were just different people I consulted with that helped me to get um, a very realistic handle on what was happening so that I can infuse the novel with details, you know, that, that really kind of brought it alive.
0: I'm sure that historian was thrilled you were writing this novel to get the story to a wider audience.
1: Yeah, I think she was. And although she was also very, very persnickety about every detail. So I really appreciated <laughs> that, um, you know, she would read it and then call me Jennifer, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, and um, and help make some corrections. So it's good. I, I felt she gave me the confidence, you know, to be able to put the story forward, um, because sometimes as a fiction writer, you know, you are hoping you're launching it right. But you know, it's hard to be confirming. And so I felt great that I had some real confirmation from someone who had been incredibly steeped in this work. And she had actually personally interviewed almost everyone who was involved, both, you know, the adults and the children in this effort for reclamation. So it was amazing.
0: That's incredible. Well, you mentioned something that I had wanted to ask you. When Anna and Oscar are taken back from the Polish family, They're effectively smuggled. And I understand the beginning of it. You know, they're trying to get them out of that portion of Poland. But why was it having to be under the cover of night and smuggling, getting them all the way to Israel?
1: Yeah, well, you know, post-war was really an interesting time. The borders, like all these borders kind of shut down and they were trying to stop the like flood flowing of, of, you know, essentially refugees. And um, so actually, a lot of it did happen under cover of night where, you know, you would try to have to cross, you have to cross through, you know, if if it was a border point, you'd be trying to go through the woods to the side of the border point, because go- unless you could bribe a guard to get through there, you know, it was it became illegal passage. And there was a whole movement of illegal passage to Palestine trying to get onto these boats. And there was an organization, Bihah, which means escape. Um, or flight, there are different translations for the word. But, you know, they worked on getting people out of Europe, getting Jews out of Europe, you know, into the, uh, you know, sort of to cross over and get into Palestine. And because Palestine, you know, was under British mandate, um, and there were also kind of rules on how many people could come in. So these people were being brought in illegally, a lot of these boats got stopped, before they came to Palestine and they got rerouted and they had to go to Cyprus and live in these, essentially in these sort of camps for for a year sometimes before they could get either legal entry into Palestine or, yeah, usually it had to, they had to wait for legal entry.
0: So it was on two sides that there were issues with, with respect to this. One, the borders were closed in Europe, which I guess makes perfect sense. I'm not sure I'd ever thought about it. And then also with the numbers going into Palestine.
1: Exactly. I mean, trying to cross the border out of Poland was complicated into Germany <laughs> and then into France. You know, there were just like these, um, you know, complexities about moving and moving around. And so these operatives, you know, either they ended up with some kind of ways of they had pathways. They were essentially running through forests in the night with a lot of children.
0: Probably following some of the same paths that have been going the other way out of Germany during the war.
1: Yeah, that may be right.
0: Hard to know. Well, it's all very interesting, and I'm so glad that we got to chat about it. And before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read recently that you really liked.
1: Yeah. So I just was on a plane. It's become my favorite thing to do is to read while on a plane, not just read, but to be told a story, (laughs) to listen to an audiobook while on a plane so I can close my eyes and just listen to this narrative. And I listened to Mame. I hope I said that right. I I really should be able to since it was narrated, but that was a fabulous book. And I was just also beginning to read Black Cake when my plane from San Diego last night uh, was landing. The other couple books I loved recently was, uh, one was called Grief is the Thing with Feathers. That's by Max Porter. And um, I don't know if you've read that one. It's amazing. And um, I also recently read Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan, and I, I, I adored that book as well. It was really fascinating and just beautifully written.
0: I have not read Small Things Like These, but I read Foster not too long ago, and I thought it was amazing, and I need to go back and pick up Small Things Like These.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, she's, a, she's a beautiful writer.
0: You know, Foster would be one that would appeal to you, too, as we're talking about this. It's, it's a different but it's the same idea of you're used to one home, you experience another. How do you go back to your first home? So it would really be in line with your book as well. It's a totally different circumstance, but it's the same idea.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna order it now.
0: <laughs> and it's short, like small things like these. I mean, it's almost more like a novella. I got through it in like an hour and a half.
1: Yeah, she's incredible that you can, you know, pack in all this content and this beautiful language in such a, you know, short, but, you know, powerful way.
0: I agree completely. Well, Jennifer, it was so nice to chat with you again. Thanks for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I I loved it.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the
1: Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like
0: award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it, because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.
1: You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes and luckily...